Our uh, scripture reading today is uh, comes from Psalm chapter eight. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the energy and the avenger, to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moons and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now we're going to sing what he just read through in Psalm. Y'all stand with us and join us on How Majestic Is Your Name. Nineteen through 24. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so you can marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives him life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, 
that all may honor the Son, just as the, just that they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life.
Lord, as we continue in our worship, we do want it to be all about you, Lord. Um, We are reminded, as we were in our Sunday school this morning, uh, who you are, how great you are, how almighty you are, omniscient. You are God. There is no other way to describe it. And we pray, Lord, that you will accept our worship this morning, both in song, in the reading of your word, and in the preaching of your word this morning, Lord. May we continue our focus on you as we sing more to you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Take my 
Faithfulness, faithfulness is what I long for. And faithfulness is what I need. And faithfulness, faithfulness is what you want from me. Take my Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father God, we, we do come to You this morning through Your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We know that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to You except by Him. Father, we ask that You would um, enlighten our minds now as we open Your Word. Lord, there's no way we can see Your face Except through Your Word, there's no way we can touch You except through Your Word. There's no way we can know You unless we look in Your Word. It's Your Word that sets You apart from all other so-called gods. They have never spoken. You have spoken clearly through Your prophets, through those who teach Your Word. And then more precisely and exactly, You spoke to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask You to open our minds Open our hearts. Let us hear clearly, spiritually, what You have to teach us today. God, move us beyond rationalism. Move us beyond academics. And move us into the application of Your Word. You'll have to do that because we are ignorant. Lord, we're not only ignorant of the facts. We're ignorant of how to apply what we know. We're ignorant of the relationship that is necessary. We are in need of holiness. We are in need this morning of righteousness. And yet we find that we cannot supply those things in and of ourself. And so we thank You, Father, for providing them for us in Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. He is our holiness. He is our righteousness. 
And we ask You to take our hearts and our minds and our wills. Make them like Yours. Even now as we look in Your Word, make us like You. That we might say, like God is holy, so I am holy. Like God is righteous, so I am righteous. Not because of who I am, but because of who He is in me. Father, I pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit to illumine this message. Without Him, this is a dry and dead process. It doesn't bring any hope to anyone. It's nothing more than a lecture. God, we don't want that now. So we ask, send Your Spirit. Send Him on the heart of every person here. Communicate through Him to the heart directly. Take the knowledge that is put out there through Your Word into the heart and apply it so that those who need salvation might be saved. So that those of us who are saved might be more like You as we leave this place, ready to face the world in Your name. Father, we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We are in the process of looking at John, particularly in John chapter 5. Several times I've tried to draw and anchor back this message that we are really looking at, that John's message. And the reason I do that weekly, if you're with us every week, you find some type of review happening, short as it may be. The hope is that by reviewing, we keep the mind of the writer here. The idea that's really trying to be communicated. You know, it's easy as we go through life to, in our daily time with the Word, our weekly time with the Word, our worship experience with the Word of God, that everything just kind of gets broken down into little bitty pieces of a big puzzle, but the puzzle's never put together. So we get a lot of good things, but they're totally disconnected in our minds. One way to battle that is to stay in one place in the Scripture and study over time. Because that helps hold the message of that writer together. You know, if you bounce around every week, you get a lot of disjointed messages that are right and good as they may be. They're just not in an overall message that's being proclaimed. So we're in the book of John. We've walked through very patiently. We've taken some breaks. We've come back. I want to help catch us up here. John organizes his writing around signs, miracles, and teachings. Not all the miracles and not all the teachings, but specific miracles and teachings he selects under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to cause one thing to happen. The purpose of John is very clear in John 20, verse 28. I write these things, what? That... You might believe in Him. And in believing in Him, you might have life. What is John's purpose then in one statement? It is that you would know who Jesus is, believe in Him, and by believing, have life. So when he writes a miracle, it's not just so you can think Jesus is a great guy that did a lot of good things. He writes about specific miracles which point to the fact of who Jesus is. We've seen three of those miracles. The first one was changing the water to wine at the wedding feast. The second one was the healing of the nobleman's son. The third one at the beginning of this chapter was when he healed the lame man, the the paralytic man, I believe. And so, here are these three specific things. And what's he saying with the water to wine? He's saying, I have taken the old and made new. 
I haven't changed what I've been doing. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one message. But in the Old Testament, it's like water. Necessary, good, it's a shadow of the best. And wine's the best. Jesus holds wine up and says, this is the best. This is what you really were looking for. This is what you want. He doesn't replace the old. He transforms the old. He makes it further enlightened. He helps us to see that God's grace has been extended through His Son from beginning to end. That's the first miracle. That's what points to Jesus there as the one person that brings men to God. The old and new. He's, he's all in all. He's yes and amen to every promise of God, Paul would say. Okay? The second miracle. What's he trying to say in that second miracle? Remember the nobleman comes and says, you know, come, you know heal my son. And Jesus says to the man, you are, your son is healed. Your son is well. And then the man leaves to go home. And his servants meet him. And what happens? They say, your son's well. He was dying. And then in, instantaneously, he, he was healed. And, they, and the man said, when? What time of the day was it? And when they told him the time of day, he said it was the exact moment that Jesus said, your son is healed. It was that exact moment. And what was it trying to say about Jesus there? That he has all authority over all things. Not only physical, but spiritual. Just like he spoke and that man's son was healed, so he speaks life into the heart of those who believe and saves them. Instantaneously. Not a process, but instantaneously. Then we come to the third miracle at the beginning of John 5. What's he saying there? Well, the point of that miracle of healing that paralytic man is that Jesus is the Son of God. I have power over disease. I have power over sin. When he says to the man, go and don't sin anymore because worse may come upon you. Power over sin and power over the Sabbath day, the law. Power even over that. And so we have these three signs that we've already seen. And there are more to come and we'll look at them later. There's also teachings. We've already seen two teachings and today we'll see a third. The first teaching found in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to him. And what's the teaching about? The new birth. You want to see the kingdom of God? You must be born again. Nicodemus, I can't do it. Jesus says, I know. God can do it. But you cannot. So God says it's impossible for man to enter the kingdom by his own power. Jesus says, you can do all you want, Nicodemus, but you will not save yourself. God must birth you into the kingdom, into life. New life, new birth. First teaching, John 4, woman at the well. Jesus says, give me a drink of water. Right? And then she says, you speak to me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus said, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, asking you for water, you wouldn't question why I spoke to you. You'd be saying, give me living water. The second teaching is about living water. He says, the, the man who accepts him has a fountain springing up to living water inside. A well that can never run dry. Right? Jesus says, you must be born again. Jesus says, if you believe in me, Water springs up. Life. Water was life in the ancient Near East. Water is life today. Isn't it amazing how our world has come to life in the last three or four weeks? Why? 
Why? Water. Life. Jesus says in that teaching, very practically, you want to live? I'm the living water. Third teaching today in John chapter 5. His third message, you might say. What's the purpose that you might believe? And that's the point of this whole story or this whole teaching is that you might believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is life. It's the title of this, I believe, uh, of this teaching. And we're going to look at it in John chapter 5, really verse 17 through 24. We've seen these, these miracles, these teachings. This teaching is foundational to all Christian belief. You can't understand Christianity without what we're about to talk about today. Now, it'd be very easy for us to get rational and academic. But I want us to get practical. I want us to understand what is Jesus trying to say and how does it make a difference in me today? That's where we're headed today. I want you to go with me there. We, in many ways, have passed the age of reason. The church, unfortunately, still argues with the world based on an old set of thinking, which was we had to prove the existence of God. I want to give, give to you today that that's out of date in most places in the world today. They concede that. Most people concede there is a God. The real debate now, the real trying to come to grips with fact now is who is that God? And how does he relate to me? That's really what the world wants to know. If you go to Joe, average Joe on the street, and start arguing about who God is, he he heads you off at the pass. Oh, I believe in God. So there's a deeper question now. We're beyond reasoning about whether there is a God. Most people believe there's one. What about it? What does it matter to me? Who is he? Well, how does he affect my life? So we're beyond that age of reason. But the church, unfortunately, is still arguing like we're in that age of having to reason out our faith. People don't listen and respond much to that argument in our day. It still may be necessary in places, but the more pertinent question today is, who is God and how does He relate to me? I believe today's today's message speaks directly to that question. Who is God and how does He impact me? What sets, really, what sets Christianity apart from Judaism, what sets it apart from atheism, what sets it apart from the Near Eastern religions, is its exclusive claim to have contact with the Almighty God through the person of Jesus Christ in a living, breathing, day-to-day relationship. See, for Jews, for for some atheists, if you even believe there is such a thing. Most people are not atheists. For agnostics, it's not a question about whether there is a God. It's how, how, okay, He's God, but how do I relate with Him? Christianity answers that question. And for the Near Eastern or the New Age religions who accept all things as God in some way, in some cases, are thousands of gods, literally, The difference between that and Christianity is there's only one God. He is known through Jesus Christ, our Savior, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
See, Christianity is distinct from everything else in the world as far as belief systems. Christianity is different. It's, it really seeks to answer not only the questions of the beginnings, it seeks to question the end. And it also answers all that's in between. Jesus Christ is the answer. Today's message points directly at that. John 5 here, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders. And I really want to focus in on the fact that we must believe in Jesus as God. We must believe in Jesus as God. You know, the subject of this discussion is really found in verse 24. Eternal life. You may say, well, that's kind of high shelf stuff, eternal life. But I don't think it is. Most people want eternal life. They show it in a bunch of ways. I'm interested in the number of people who try to find the eternal fountain of youth. You might say, well, that was the explorers long ago. No, it's now. It's now. People are looking for every way possible to extend this life. I mean, some of them are okay ways. I'm not bashing all those things. But health food craze. I mean, people are crazy about health food these days. I like Seth's philosophy. We're going to die. Why am I going to prolong this life? I want to go to heaven. I'm going to eat what I want to eat. That's a good philosophy. We all ought to adopt that in some ways. But the, what is the fixation with health food nowadays? I've got to live longer. Well, that's not bad in itself, but what's the motivation of that? I think it's a fear of what comes after the death. It's a fear of there could be a such thing as eternity, and I'm not real sure where that fits for me and where I fit in that. The cosmetic craze in our day. Not just women. Men and women. You know, you meet these people, and, and I'm not pointing at anybody in particular, nor am I trying to talk about right and wrong here. Just overall perception in our culture. Right? Of the eternal fountain of youth. Where does it exist now? A lot of times in a doctor's scaffold. Because that 50-year-old wants to look like a 20-year-old. Man and woman. I'm not pointing at women. Don't start saying, yeah, honey, I told you. That's what you're doing. Go to the cosmetic counter and see what they try to sell. It's not just hide your blemishes. It's make them disappear. See, humanity wrestles instinctively to live forever. Death is ignored in our day. Go back just a few generations and people focused on death real early in life. They planned for it. They knew it was coming. It wasn't a shock when people died. Today, people are actually shocked when death happens. It's like we didn't know that was what was coming. We've denied that it's coming. Why? Because the question of eternity looms large in our society. People are struggling with what happens to me in the next life. Is there a next life? What's the answer to all of these things? I gotta stay younger. I gotta stay fit. I gotta make myself appear younger. I, I need that, I need that sense of security that youth brings. Why? Because I'm afraid of what comes after death. Now they're not gonna say that when they walk up to you. Hey, I'm struggling with the eternity. Uh, that's why I'm doing all these things. I would say they don't even consciously always think that way. But subconsciously, there is a war going on about fear. 
in the mind. What happens? Jesus answers the question in our passage. That's why I say it's foundational to Christian belief. It's foundational to our life. It's in just theory. It's very practical. We have to believe in Jesus as God. Jesus claims to be God. That's why I included verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, My Father is working unto now, and I am working. The Jews in verse 18 understand that to be a claim by Jesus that He is God. But I want to open that up a little bit. Let's look at it. What is He saying when He's... When he, when he claims to be God. See, the Jews would have been comfortable if he had inserted our where he put my. Just that little change would have satisfied the Jewish leaders. Kept Jesus off the hot seat. Our Father is working and I'm working with Him. They would have been happy with that. Because the Jews accepted this corporate God Father from the Old Testament. Their theology was good as far as God is our Father. The problem they had was when Jesus said, He's my Father, exclusively, different than He is your Father. He's my Father. They would have never said that. But Jesus, when He says, my Father is working, it's a claim of equality in their mind. Look at their response. How do I know that? Look at verse 18. What's the accusation? Not only is he breaking the Sabbath, but he even calls God his own father, making himself. I didn't put the idea of equality in this in the in the passage. They did. Jesus wasn't just saying, I'm like you and God's our father. He's saying, I am the one son. I'm the promised son. I am. Direct relationship with the father. And they understand that to be equality. And so they charge him with blasphemy. Our father would have been okay. My father, his claim of being equal with God is offensive to them. He's equal with God in his very nature. It's not just his office. It's just not how he acts. It's he's, he is God. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Again, this is an exact equaling of the two. The Father, Jehovah, and the Lord are one in the Word. And who is the Word in verse 14? Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the Father in the only begotten Son. Through Him we receive grace Upon grace. And so we have this exclusive claim of Him being one, equal with the Father. That's what angered the Jews. That's what angers the world today. You can be accepted in any place, anywhere, to talk about God in general. You can pray to God in general. You can believe in God and call other people to believe in God in general. But when you say the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ, you've offended the world. You've set yourself up in their minds as arrogant, as a possessor of the only truth, 
And you've in a sense called them liars. That's what Jesus was saying to the Jews without saying it outright. He says, He's my Father. And in a sense, He's put them on the spot because He's called into question their very foundation beliefs. And so when you go with this message of Jesus Christ, don't be shocked when the response of the world is, How dare you? You have no right. Who is Jesus? Why this gospel? Why not my way? That's going to be their response. You should expect that. So what, how, do we get, how do we maneuver in this area? Well, some would say we need to include other faiths in our faith. Very prominent religious leaders today say when you go to a culture, a non-Christian culture, and I would say the United States is a non-Christian culture at this point. You don't get exclusive. You just accept all gods as equal and then you try to work Jesus in somewhere. When you go to a Muslim culture, this is what we call syncretizing. Syncing up, linking together two ideas that seem to be exclusive, but now we're going to make them inclusive. So when you go to a Muslim culture, you go to the mosque, you worship, just like they do, you say the prayers, you just say them to Jesus instead of through the prophet Muhammad. And then you include with Muhammad Jesus as two equals in some sense, and then you reason towards an exclusive faith in Jesus. It won't work. You can't backdoor Jesus. You can't bring Him in at the end as some grand surprise. And it's happening in our world. It's happening in our world. The greatest offense now is when we rise to say, I'm glad that you believe in God, but there's only one God. That's the greatest offense, right? Not just talking about some God somewhere, but being specific. And Jesus is very specific. He calls Himself God. He even dares to call Himself God. This was the reason they tried to kill Him. We see that throughout the Gospel of John. In John 7, verse 1, the Jewish leaders. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Because He claimed to be God, they they are seeking to kill Him. Throughout the passage we find in John, these references, they want to kill Him because He claims to be God. It's interesting, the Jews are guilty of what they accuse Jesus of. Blasphemy. Because, see, He is God. And so their denial of Him is a denial of the Father. And the denial of the Father is the sin, the blasphemy that they are so adamant against Jesus with. He not only claims to be God, He claims to be working with God from all of eternity. We see that in verse 17 again. My Father is working until now and I'm working. Verse 19, truly, truly calling attention to the importance of this statement. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So in 17 and 19, Jesus claims to be working with the Father. Now, this is, can seem difficult, but I want to try to make it simple. Augustine, when he was talking about these verses in his commentary, made this statement. The flame is evident because of its light. 
light exists because of the flame. In other words, you can't separate the two. You can't say, I see light, but not a flame. And you can't say, I see the flame and no light. It's the same way with Jesus. What he's saying is not that he and the Father are somehow totally distinct and yet working together. He's saying everything the Father does, the flame, everything he does comes through me as light. And when you see me working, he says, I'm the light of the world. When you see me, you've seen the Father. So, when we talk about the exclusiveness, what sets Christianity apart? What makes it so different? What makes it different is we're the only group of people in all the world that claim that this unseen God is visible. We have a historically verifiable, real vision of who God is. There's no need for our emotional dreams and conjuring up some Jesus out there. You see, because the world may grant, some in the world may grant, some of your friends may grant Jesus to you, but then they want to define who Jesus is. You know, He's the soft-spoken, as I often say, He's the soft-spoken, pale blue-wearing, long-haired, big-shaven Jesus. He's sweet. He's kind. He has... A doctor's hands. Finesse. That's Jesus. That's my Jesus. He just loves everybody. He never, he'd never judge anybody. He's only love. They create a Jesus because they don't want the real Jesus. Or they would say he's a good teacher. He's a good man. I accept him as that. But that's not an option for us. What is the option to accept that rugged character? That's presented in the Bible. The man who hung out with fishermen and carpenters and sinners. The man who dared to call God his equal. The man who dared to say, unless you come through me, you cannot come to the Father. The exclusive Jesus. The historical Jesus. That's who we believe in. See, Jesus is not up for interpretation. Jesus is not up for argument. He's verified by those who touched Him, held Him, spoke with Him, witnessed what He did. He is a real Jesus. That's the Jesus we believe in. And by believing in Him, the light, we believe in the flame, God the Father. When we see Him, we see the eternal God. You want to see God? You say, God, I want to see you face to face. We sung that this morning. How do I see you face to face? In the Word of God, through that Jesus who is presented as God in the flesh. That's how we see Him. See, we don't need little bracelets to say, what would Jesus do? We don't need it. If you're wearing one, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against you. But, but really... In all sincerity, that's a move away from the historical Jesus. It really is. It's dangerous. Because see, you, when, when you say, what would Jesus do? What are you really doing? You're making Jesus do the thing you really want to do. Because in reality, when you ask that question, 
the result of what comes out of that conversation is what your will said to do. Now, it may be right, it may be wrong, but now all of a sudden Jesus would do just what I did. You know? And it trivializes the historical Jesus. You know, the truth is, I don't know particularly how Jesus would react in a coffee shop with a postmodern. I, I don't know. What would Jesus do? All I have is what Jesus did. Facts. Now I'm left in prayer and communion with Him to not decide what He would do, but to know what the Father would have me do. How do I know that? Through the Word. Anything, as good as it may look on the surface, that takes us a step away from that Word is dangerous. It leads to error. You end up with the Jesus who would accept homosexuals and never challenge them with their sin. Not only just accept them in the pews, but in the pastorate. Not only just in the pastorate, but as heads of denominations of the so-called church. And Jesus would do that because He's loving and He's kind. When you step away from the historical Jesus, you're in fiction, aren't you? And you're the boss. You're the one who decides who Jesus is. And that's not acceptable because of passages like this. If we want to know what Jesus did, we look at passages like John 5 and when He says, everything I do is the will of the Father. I'm the light, He is the flame. Everything He does, I do. Everything I do, He did. I am God in the flesh. And so He claims that authority and that, that oneness with the Father. He works the works of God. God was understood to work providentially at all times. And here in this verse in 17, He says, My Father's working even now and I'm working with Him. I am working the works of my Father even now. He claims to have been working with God from all of eternity. Jesus is affectionately loved by His Father. Look in verse 20. Jesus is God. Jesus is working the works of God. Jesus is loved by God. And that may seem anticlimactic to what we've talked about, but it's crucial. Look in verse 20. John chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. This is a powerful verse because the word that is used here for love is not God's love. Okay? Some of you that have been in church a long time have heard the play on love, agape and phileo. God's love is agape, unconditional, willful, chosen love. Right? And the best we can hope for is to love our brothers as ourselves. That's the best we can do. Right? Here's the one exception to that God's kind of love right here. God, it says, the Father phileo me. He loves His Son affectionately. What makes that so impactful? You see, God chooses to love me and you. It's a willful thing. We are unacceptable sinners. We are unacceptable sinners. There's no reason why God should love us, yet He chooses to love us. But when it comes to His Son, Jesus, He loves Him affectionately, deeply for who He is. He doesn't have to choose to love Him. He simply loves Him. 
that relationship is shown here. God never says he affectionately loves anybody else, just the son. He doesn't. He never claims to love us this way. Why? Because we aren't lovable in and of ourselves. He cannot love us this way. We're unacceptable. He has to choose to love us in his son. He has to choose to love us because we're his enemies. And yet with his son, Jesus Christ, there's no, it's just like when my children were born. Some of you have had children. Isn't it amazing? You love that little thing better than anything in all of the world the moment it's born. You have to choose to love it. Later, you have to choose to love it at times. Right? All earthly analogies break down at some point, don't they? But the moment that baby is born, if you've ever been in that room when that's happened or nearby, this overwhelming, affectionate love beams off of the mother and father, and this is my son, and I love it. This is my daughter. I love this thing. It's mine. I got this deep bond and relationship with it like nothing else in all the world. That's what God, that's what Jesus says exists between him and his father. This deep, abiding, affectionate relationship that wasn't chosen. It was a fact from all of eternity. He loves Jesus because Jesus is lovable. He loves me in Christ because he chooses to love me. I'm unlovable, yet he loves me. It magnifies the relationship between Jesus and our relationship with the Father through Jesus. And so Jesus, to, 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 we must believe in Jesus as God. Jesus says He's God. Jesus says, I work with God, one in one, and the same. And we love each other affectionately. And greater miracles are going to happen than this, this paralyzed man walking. Greater things are going to happen than that so that you can believe. Why, what is greater than, than a man walking? Well, John 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And beyond that, in his earthly ministry and in, since then, thousands and millions have come to new life through him. That's the great work which is greater than any other work. And yet the word work is there. Notice he doesn't call it a miracle. Notice that. In Jesus' terminology, these things he's doing are not miracles. They're just work. Like you go to work, do what you do. Jesus works. The Father works. So all these miraculous things are just commonplace for Him. Paralyzed people walking, dead people being raised up. That's all just everyday business for God. It's no sweat off His brow. It's simply His nature. He's working and greater works He will do. You, we must believe in Jesus for eternal life. And this is where we end. This is where we close God gives us life through His Son in verse 21. For us the Father raises, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Deuteronomy 32-39 says that God is the one who raises up dead men. He, he raises up the dead. First, first Samuel 2 verse 6 in the prayer of Hannah, she says it is God who puts them in Sheol and God who raises them up. There's a great history in the Jewish religion at this moment in time when Jesus is speaking of God raising dead people. And now Jesus says, just as the Father does that, I'm going to do it. Again, a claim to His being the Son of the God. God gives life. God gives life through His Son, Jesus. 
In Him all things were created that have been created. All life comes through Him. Verse 4 in chapter 1 of John. Jesus is the life giver. He's the life giver. But He's not only the life giver, He's the judge. So He gives life and He judges. In the Old Testament, again, we would have seen God as the judge. And yet, in this passage, we see Jesus being the judge of the world. In verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to me, the Son. And so we have this picture of Jesus, God, life giver, and judge. So I promised you something at the beginning. How does this matter to me? Look at verse 24. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. How does it impact me? First of all, you have to hear. Hear. Now, hearing is interesting in the scripture. You not only hear with your ears here, you hear with your heart. You spiritually hear it. It's connected with repentance. If you actually hear that Jesus is the Son of God, if you really hear that, you repent of who you are immediately. If you ever hear it spiritually, inside, not with these ears, but with the ears of your heart, you immediately repent if you ever hear it. Not everyone does hear it with their spiritual ears. But those who do repent immediately. They repent. So, first of all, how does it impact me? I need to hear it. Not just with my ears, but really in my heart. And then I said repentance happens. And we trust with our entire life. We trust. You say, well, trust isn't mentioned here. It is in verse 24. I say to you, he, whoever hears my word and believes. John uses the word believe 98 times. Now, in this gospel, he uses it 98 times. And you say, what, what's the big deal about that? Well, that's more than all the other writers in Scripture combined. The verb believe is used over and over and over again in this gospel. What was his point in John twenty twenty eight? That you believe in Him and by believing have eternal life. Believing is a big concept for John. A huge deal. Not just some minor thing, but it's big. He never uses the word belief. The noun. He always uses the verb believe. He never says you need to have belief. The noun. Why? Because belief is active. Believing is active. Charles Spurgeon, just in closing, I say this. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in the 1800s, said, we need to stop telling our children to love Jesus. That convicts me. Because all their lives I've said, love Jesus. He wrote this to his students. He continued, they must believe in Jesus. And as I study the Scripture, over and over again, we're commanded to believe 
which is faith, not love Jesus. That is important. Because you can't love Jesus first. You have to believe in Him. Affection comes. Love comes in for Jesus once true belief has occurred. We don't need to tell children or adults for that matter to love Jesus. We need to say to them what Jesus says and what John writes 98 times. Believe. 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 Faith. Trust. And I would say if we could go in that room one at a time with me and I ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Everybody in here would say yes. You're here. But there are those, maybe many, who don't really actively believe in Him. You know the facts of who Jesus is. He's historical. He's real. He occurred. You might even get emotional about that. But you've never trusted Him. You never trusted Him with your life. That's belief. And John, that trust idea, John brings that in in John chapter 15 when he says, Abide, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. He who abides in the vine bears much fruit. See, the, look, some of you came here today and you don't know Jesus. And so for you, this message says Jesus is the only one to believe in. If you do not believe in Him, you are under judgment even now. And you face eternal judgment, separation from God. That's what it says. But for the believer, this message says stop trying to bear fruit. That's not what Jesus has commanded of us. Jesus has commanded, abide in me, believe in me. And he who does that will bear much fruit. We've got the cart up front and the horse in the back. We're trying to do with our actions what Jesus will do if we believe. Believe. It's active, but it's passive. It's the only grace in all the scripture that is passive. It's a receiving grace. Faith. I faith that. What does it mean? I literally hold hands up like this and receive it. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. I hold my hands out like a baby cries out to its mother, pick me up. That's what we say to Jesus. Jesus, give me faith. I want to believe. That's what we say. And when we say that, there's repentance, there's true faith, and there's fruit. Some of you just need to really accept that and stop trying to make Him happy. Your whole life is in contradiction of this teaching of Jesus in John 5. Jesus didn't tell anybody to do anything except believe. Because the last verse, verse 24, is an invitation from Jesus to Himself, to you, to Him. He's inviting you to believe in Him. The last verse is an invitation, an altar call, so to speak. 
And His call to you is not be a better person, fix your life, come to church more, bear fruit. His offer and His call is believe in Me. If you believe in Me, you believe in God because I work with My Father. I love, I'm in love with My Father. I'm the light that shines in the world from the flame which is My Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to Him, the Father, except through Him. Nobody. Let's pray. Father, There's no mystery left, Lord. You've revealed all things. Help us to understand. There are lost people in this congregation today who need to believe. There are Christians here who need to continue to believe. We're hopeless without You. We can't do it. So God, give us faith. Give us real faith to live in you, to abide in you. That's all we ask. That's all we seek. That's all we desire. Real faith in the real Jesus, who is the real God, the author and the finisher of our salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to uh, remind you just quickly.